All right, another EdTrex podcast coming up, coming at you right now. So we've got a guest sitting at the table with us today. I'm Quinn Henderson. Uh, Matt Winters. And our guest today is... Scott Rogers. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. So Scott and I met a long, long time ago. It was a long time ago. Wasn't Did you it? just yeah. say that because that was he's wearing a Star Wars shirt? You're like a, a long, <laughs> long, long time ago in a galaxy called Weaver State. Um, it was a long time ago. Yeah, I, you interviewed me in 2012. I was about to say, yeah. yeah so that was, that doesn't oh feel wait, like it you a, hired him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as an adjunct. Oh, I mean, I don't know if we'll have that much time on the podcast, but why? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I actually I ran the composition program, so right. Yeah, so I hired a lot of adjuncts. Yeah. It was a quick conversation, but um, we've done a lot of t- stuff together over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. So start us off with a little bit about your background, Scott. Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I was born a poor black child. and <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I'm, uh, my undergraduate is from the University of Southern Mississippi. I graduated with uh, English and psychology, did a master's and PhD in 18th and 19th century British literature at uh, Oklahoma State in the middle of nowhere. In, uh, what was the name of the city? Stillwater, Oklahoma. Yeah, I've heard of Stillwater. There's yeah. something famous there. Isn't there a, an audio company that's from Stillwater? I don't know. It's like MTX or something. There MTX Audio or something. There may be. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's the weirdest little town in the world because it's like the university's got like 30,000 people and the town has like 20,000 people. So <laughs> when school's out, there's no one there. Like you can go see blockbuster movies at the theater and like get it all to yourself. But when school's in, it's just like the, suddenly the town just like more than doubles in population. It's just wild. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So you eventually made your way to Weaver State. I did. Um, and you took over the composition program. When was that? <laughs> I don't know. I'd say took it over. Well, took it over. <laughs> I didn't like became mount, the head of. I didn't mount a campaign and <laughs> marshal an army. I think um, it's a Star Wars shirt, like throwing me off a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I got hired here in 2003 as a one-year contract person. Um, and there, and then I was hired tenure track the, in 2004 and, um, uh, they, I was hired as tenure track because the composition director, um, a guy named Dave Sumner, who's now, I think at Lind college, mm. um, he left like in the middle of the academic year, which is kind of rare. That didn't happen very often. And, um, uh, they needed somebody who could run a composition program and the Victorianist was looking at retiring and so they needed a victorianist as well and so i came in with that exact skill set it's just like a serendipitous it's incredibly lucky my wife and i are both like we both have tenure track jobs in the same department and it's just that's that just doesn't happen yeah it's amazing so yeah we're never going anywhere so you and i started working together a little bit because of you you started rewriting and reworking the curriculum for um, concurrent enrollment classes mm-hmm. at the at the and the English classes at the college level. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Why? What? Where did that come from? What did that project start out as? You talking about the Thai stuff? Thai stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I think it was 2011. The story I was told was that some busybody legislator had decided to fix concurrent enrollment. And so they put uh, a half a million dollars on it. It's great how you can just decide to fix something. Right. Yeah, and by the way, we haven't heard and, of any busybody les- and, legislators. Just and, the, and the reason the reason I say busybody legislator is because the next thing that happens is that somebody says, "Well, let's put some real money behind it," and they put two million dollars out on the table, and they made it seem like. Um, I mean, and this is fantastic. Like, I, you know, I, I yeah. really. I mean, they threw an enormous amount of money at this, and it was, you know. I, Thank you, you know. Um, but the uh, the idea was, um, well, I was sorry. I was told by the by the the university that we needed to apply for these 
for these these grants that were going to be coming out of this initiative. And uh, it turns out uh, the, Chuck White, who's the now exiting Weber State president, was running this program out of the dean's office, I don't know, his dean's office at the U. And uh, he had a meeting for all of us um, uh, at the at the the regents uh, at, at at the regents office and um, explained that it wasn't competitive. We weren't competing against one another. And what they wanted to do was they wanted uh, massive teams with representation of, of faculty from all over the state to come in and um, create these technology intensive concurrent enrollment courses that could be offered ideally in uh, really rural places. Um, where there may not be a qualified instructor. So how can you use the technology to accomplish that? Um, and so they wanted us to just be as creative as possible. And then there was also this big push to sort of um, have everything be outcomes-based and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, there we're, we did two rounds of course, courses for that. The first, the 1010 that we did, um, no one knew what it was. So I, you know, I contact every department chair in the in, in, in the state, and some of them were just like, I'm not interested, and uh, some of them, you know, sort of sent me a one-year contract person or an adjunct or something like that, um, and uh, the budget for the first course was uh, I want to say two hundred and twenty-something thousand dollars, um, and uh, when they found out there was some money behind it. The, the, for the 2010, I got every writing program administrator in the state <laughs> on the team, which is great. Right, yeah. And they uh, they were fantastic. The 2010 course is so good. Um, so what wound up happening was um, uh, the, the course was basically created by um, – um, the 1010 course was basically created by me, uh, Nathan Strait from Utah State, and um, Jenny Andrus from the U. And uh, what we did was this is the first time I'd ever been involved in in curriculum development that was data based. Um, in other words, every time, every other time I've ever done curriculum development, it has been I have this idea that the kids these days need to do X, you know, or this one kid in my class can't do Z, and I'm going to make a whole course to make sure that the kids can do Z. Never have, I, never have I done uh, curriculum reform where what we did was we looked at data about deficits in student writing. And there's good work coming out of Syracuse and there's good work coming out of Carnegie Mellon that uh, suggests that um, uh, students have some reading comprehension deficits, that students have a real hard time summarizing and paraphrasing because that requires comprehension. Um, and so what we did was we said, uh, well, if your students can't if they don't understand what they're reading, then um, then asking them to compose a you know an analytical essay at the end of English 1010 is absurd, mm -hmm. and and the data also confirmed for us. And this is um, a Becky Howard's work out of Syracuse, which is just fantastic with the the citation project. Um, the data also confirmed what we what we've always known, which is that um, I, I wish I had the stats in front of me, but the the, the students when you ask them to do research, they um, they get the shortest source possible, and most of their quotations come from the first page of the shortest source possible. Um, and so, like most of the like every, most of what they're doing is like five pages, but they're getting quotes from the first page, which suggests that they're doing exactly what we think they're doing, which is that they're quote mining. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, well, let's pause there for yeah, a second. Sure. So, what is quote mining? That's, Explain that for that's for the when you uh, the student writes the paper 
here's my idea about whatever, um, you know, that we should arm, uh, you know, crocodiles or something. It doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> um, and then they just go find quotations to back that up, and they just stick them in there, right? And you've you've seen those papers, right? Where yeah. you know, I may have written one. Yeah, you know, I, I, like I will turn papers back to students and say, you could pull every quotation out of this paper, and it would not make a bit of difference. Like that's a real problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a function of it's a function of the way that we tend to teach students, uh, or not not teach them, but the way that we talk about the function of research, right? That that you'd conduct research to back up your opinion. That's absurd. Like that's completely backwards because mm-hmm. that tells you that the opinion comes first, right? And right. then you go find evidence to back up whatever wacky idea you've got. So what we did was design these courses that um, force students to actually know what they're talking about before they even sit down to do anything. So um, it's a you know it's a really simple idea, but it's kind of amazing how kind of revolutionary it is in terms of what it accomplishes for the students. So um, as you know, as the students go through these, we're collecting all kinds of data. We did like three years of day of assessment of these courses before we even three years of piloting before we even got even close to sort of rolling out larger larger numbers of sections. And the students just consistently outperform their peers in uh, in the non tice you know, curricula. I mean, like, and I mean, like, sixty-seven out of seventy outperform. Wow. I mean, it's wow. like it's like that. I mean, it's like ridiculous. But when you stop and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's just like ask the students to make sure that they understand what they're talking about before they sit down to write a paper. Well, which sounds, is not what we've been doing. Yeah. Well, it also <laughs> sounds like you're you're asking the students to basically we do what we've re- we've done for a long time in the reverse process sure. instead of going in with a, a thing that they're trying to prove let's step up and say what are you interested in yeah. what do you want to write about yeah. let's start with a topic let's yeah. start with research then let's formulate an opinion based on that research yeah. or, or a thesis based yeah. on that research yeah yeah because yeah. the other way is is uh, let's you know what do you have an opinion about and let's write about that Exactly, which, which is, is completely counterintuitive to the whole research process. It's counterintuitive to how anything works. Well, especially <laughs> if you have an opinion and there is nothing out there right, right. that's going to help you, you right. get there. You're just going to get frustrated right. along the way and yeah. say, I can't do this. And I've actually – this has come to really dominate the way I, I, I've changed large chunks of my writing at every undergraduate level. So, like, I don't know, I'm not doing analytical essays in my 4,000-level Victorian literature courses anymore. Hmm. You know, like it's I, instead I, I, I want them to look at reception histories. I want them to look at, you know, things that people have said about, you know, this poem or this play. Um, you know, I've, I've got this assignment called This One Thing I Found on the Internet Says. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I love it. It's the best assignment because like I just ask them like uh, it, like a 2000 level intro lit class. Give me a question about, I don't know, Porphyria's Lover, you know, or Hamlet. And give me a question about that. Go find something on the internet that answers that question. Then explain how what that thing. Explain me. Explain to me what your question is. Explain to me how the thing answered your question. And, and that's it. That's the assignment. Which is so simple, but it's, it's a revolutionary it's idea. Really, it's fantastic. And oh, the yeah. students love it. And yeah. the nice thing is that you know they're not BSing. No. You know they're not. They're not. I, I'm not asking them to make an, to make an argument. All I'm doing is saying, I had a question about like why does Ophelia go mad in Hamlet? And there's this one essay I found that does. It's great. Well, it's an internet-enabled annotated bibliography, basically. Right. Yeah. And that's amazing. Um, one of my questions for you is, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of K-12 work mm. um, on this side of the table. You're obviously in higher ed. I've mm. kind of bridged that gap between the two. Mm. Um, what would you say to teachers, and, and I'm not just talking ELA, because English language arts, it, writing goes across the core. Mm, Every right. discipline should be writing. Mm-hmm. Should be, keyword. Um, 
what would you say to them to kind of reinforce this idea earlier in the grades? Like I'm talking like seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, before they even get into English 1010, maybe concurrent enrollment or early college. What would you want to see in the classroom for that to be engaged? Uh, more right, uh, definitely more writing, uh, and I think part of the issue is, um, it, I mean, I totally understand why, uh, you know, K twelve instructors do what they do in terms of not assigning a whole lot of writing because if you've got two hundred students and you assign a four page paper, I mean, that's a lot. That's a you know, that's a Game of Thrones novel, mm-hmm. you know, that's not as good, right? Um, and so I, I would like to, I would encourage more low stakes writing. By which I mean like little short things written in class turned in. The, the teacher can just check them off, right? Mm-hmm. But it's that sort of that recursive practice of like writing over and over and over and over again. I do this in my composition classes. Like they always write. They're writing all the time. And it's always just low stakes. Like did you do it? Did you not do it? I'm not checking your grammar. I'm not checking your spelling. There's that. The other piece is um, uh, uh, more reading. One of the things that I'm seeing a lot of problems with or not a lot of problems. One weird thing that I keep pointing out on my Facebook is like the students have real deficits with um, preposition use. Hmm. It's hmm. really strange. Like it's like they pull a random preposition out of a bag and put it in there. <laughs> like they'll use they'll maybe use, there's an app. They'll use of when they mean on, or they'll use yeah. by when they mean near or, or about, and it's just really weird. And I think it's a function of not reading a whole lot. Um, so uh, I would encourage more reading of perhaps more sophisticated things and then more writing at low stakes levels with an emphasis on uh, comprehension and the reading. Well, and both of those are easy things that any teacher can do. Super easy. I mean, thinking about the low stakes writing, it's just having them do some sort of writing every week or every other week that encourages them just to write. And so you're not really checking it off. You're not going in there and getting the pen out and being like, here's the red ink that I have to get on there. It's just, did you do it? Awesome. Good job. I see the score. And here in the state of Utah, any ELA teacher, or actually any teacher, has the opportunity to use something called um, Utah Compose, Mm -hmm. which grades against the the state standards automatically. So, I mean, that kind of low-stakes writing, all you have to do is pop a prompt in there, Key it up and you're ready to go. Well, I sit here on, on this side and not being on the in the language arts, you know, class or teaching on in language arts, I mean, what am I doing to get my students to write yeah. more? And I'm just going through even the last couple of weeks, how much writing have we done? And really we could do more. I mean, even if it's just just a little bit of writing, that every little bit counts. And then I think about the reading too, right? So yeah. I, I love to read, so I'm always reading something. But I mean, how often are we getting the kids excited about reading still. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm going to go back to my class on Tuesday and ask them what they're reading, yeah. right? And if they're not reading something, I, would, I think I'm going to take a minute and say, let's just go find a book you'd be interested in reading. Yeah. Well, it goes back to something you said earlier, this idea of choice as well. What do you like to read? What are you engaged with? What are you digging into? Yeah. And having that be a part of the classroom rather than we all have to read this text together. Everyone's nerdy about something. Everybody is. And it, oh, yeah. you can be nerdy. I mean, somebody's nerdy about sports. Somebody's nerdy about comic books. Somebody's nerdy about Star Wars. It doesn't matter. Like, everybody's nerdy about something. They, got, they care about something. It might be a video game that I, that I don't know anything about, but that doesn't mean that they don't care about it. And that doesn't mean it's not something that they can't write about or think about. So with that said, Scott, and I didn't put this in my email to you, but I would be remiss if we didn't talk about your application of pop culture. Mm to the college classroom. Mm. 
because you've done amazing things with running classes about sci-fi television shows like Firefly. Mm -hmm. um, you just did a, a session last semester about um, are comic books heroes actually good? I'm teaching it right now. Oh, it's right, now. right now. So tell us a little bit about how you apply pop culture. Um, I had... Uh, even before I got to Weber State, I was attending the Popular Culture Association Conference in Santa Fe or in, uh, in Albuquerque, and um, and I'd attended it a couple of times. And I, I went to a session by a woman from the U, and I cannot remember her name, and I don't think she's still there. But it was a, a, pa a panel about um, uh, teaching, uh, uh, what was it called, um, like fan courses on like cult television that's what it was okay uh, cult television and so she did Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. and she the, the, the course sounded amazing and she talked about how the students would like email her you know like these giant PowerPoint things that they'd done in their spare time just to track this one thing down and the deal is that this, the students are already doing these things and they're super nerdy about it and I, I use the word nerdy with total unbridled affection mm -hmm. um, they're super nerdy about it and and what they want or what they what they get out of a course like this is their their deep love of whatever the subject is is validated, right? Um, and so the first class I did was um, I taught the first season of, of Firefly Lost and Battlestar Galactica, the same way that I would teach a novel. And we put seventy five students in a lecture hall. Um, the second course I did was um, Fire no. Yeah, it might have been Firefly. We put 40 students in a room that held 25, and we had students just laying on the floor. I mean, it was insane. Um, I taught a course on um, Caprica, which is um, the prequel to Battlestar Galactica, the Battlestar Galactica show, um, and Frankenstein sort of as one course. Um, I did uh, a course on Buffy the Vampire Slayer a couple of semesters ago, um, which was full of theater majors. Um, and I did this semester. I'm doing um, uh, a sort of newest sources analysis of comic books, um, or not comic books, but superheroes. And um, so the the question I began the course with is, what's up with all these superhero movies? Mm -hmm. um, oh. You know. I, Part of it is that the producers are in their mid-40s. They read these comic books when they were kids, and they're unabashedly in love with this stuff. But it's also uh, – I, you know, I approach all, all forms of art with the idea that um, this art is doing something, if it's popular. It's doing something. It's helping us work through some issue or concern or problem the same way that alien invasion movies help us work through the Cold War or you know whatever. Um, and so uh, this semester we're doing a whole bunch of graphic novels, a whole bunch of movies. We're reading. So who are you looking at specifically? Uh, not anybody in spe not anybody specifically. We started with Hulk Gray, which is a retelling of mm -hmm. the Hulk origin story. Then we went to one of the Batman, Batman Year One, I think. Frank Miller, right? Uh, yeah. So we looked at the uh, sort of a couple, a handful of origin stories. We talked a lot about vigilantism and what it says about us uh, in the West that we love the idea of vigilantes. And we keep coming back to it. I mean, you know, there's a there's a stock argument that superhero movies replaced um, westerns because they're both vigilantes and and they and they speak to a desire for us to see justice, right? Um, but if you when you start to think about it, uh, it's also a a, a a sort of deep fear, and this is what we've been talking about lately in the past few weeks: a deep fear that we are um, not safe ever. And we want someone to keep us safe, right? Um, so we did the Batman stuff. We did Watchmen. Right now we're in um, a sort of a diversity section. So we did the first of the Ta-Nehisi Coates Black Panther, um, which I just finished the fourth one. Matt pumping his it's, fist there. It, it's uh, – it, I understand what he's doing. 
I never read Black Panther, so I was totally lost. We were all really confused. And what made it worse is, like, I put it in there because, A, I love Tiny's Coats, and, B, I was like, this is supposed to be fantastic, this little political allegory, and I didn't understand any of it. And So I feel really bad about that. I but, actually just started <laughs> reading that last night. But, but we're right now, we just finished up Miss Marvel, which I think oh, is yeah. Brilliant, and my the, students, the new just, one, right? The with new the one, teenager? the new one. Yeah. yeah, my students loved it, and it's just we had so much fun talking about it. So now we're done with that. We're moving into the 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 critique and decline of superheroes at the end of the of the semester. So we'll do Logan, and we'll do the Dark Knight, um, and we'll do um, uh, a Once Crowded Sky, um, and then we wind up with uh, Marvels, the, the that history of the Marvel universe. Um, oh, and Civil Wars in there as well. Um, and uh, so we'll end with, you know, this is the perception of this subject from a regular person's perspective, which would be terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the idea well, that, that Marvels is amazing. It's for fantastic. That. That's why I wanted to end with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, that one's one that I would, anytime somebody's like, what, where do I start? Yeah. Go read Marvels. Yeah. Because it's beautiful art. Yeah. It's a simple story. And it's the history of the Marvel universe. And it's the history. Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, I forgot. We're also doing um, the first couple of episodes of Powerless. Oh, that's that show. It, was, it got canceled. It's on ABC. It was a yeah. Vanessa Hudgens show uh, about a branch office of Wayne Industries nice. that creates uh, stuff to keep people safe from superhero battles. And <laughs> so, like umbrellas that the rubble can fall off the top of. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's really delightful. I mean, it really is. Um, and we did like Jessica Jones, and we did Luke Cage, and things like that. So, um, but yeah, it's fun. But uh, the students are already there. You know, yeah. they, they're. I'm I'm sort of my argument is like like they're. This is where they live. I'm going to go get them because this is interesting and this is valuable. And if it weren't interesting and valuable, we wouldn't keep, you know, I mean, Superman and Batman are almost 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they want it. Right. It's, and you're, you're doing stuff that really shows why graphic novels, why yeah. comic books, why pop culture matters in the classroom, um, which so many parents at my level don't understand. Yeah. But then also so many college students look at and, and scoff. But there is that audience there. I mean, I'm looking at that going, I wish I was back in college. Well, I'm, I'm sitting over here going, I think I might need to go take a couple <laughs> of classes right now. Because what you're doing is you're stepping into their world, yeah. right? And you're making it okay. No matter what you yeah. read, you're reading or you're engaging with it, whatever it is, it's all, it's all valuable. It's all relevant. Yeah. I've got a whole list of things here now that and, I'm going to be reading. And, and with that said, I should point out, like, I'm a Christina Rossetti scholar. Like, like most of my work is on, you know, Victorian poet Christina Rossetti. Like, I do feminist literary history, among other things. So, but in my side, and, you know, in, in my spare time, I'm teaching courses on superheroes and you know, TV shows. Which is incredible. <laughs> and it's such a refreshing way to see college classes being taught, but also just any way that we can approach ELA in a new, with a new lens. Yeah. Is really helpful. Yeah. Well, or get anybody engaged. Exactly. Right. Just to, to engage them. Because I, I, if stepping into a class like that, I could have taken a whole different path, I think. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, Amazing. thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Scott. We really appreciate it. Where can uh, people reach out to you, um, get into your kind of your world of all this stuff that you're talking about? Oh, wow. Um, the best way to find me is just to catch me on email from my Weber State page, um, okay. probably. Um, I'm, I'm Googleable. So, yeah. There you go. Um, he's also a uh, recording artist and performs all over the Wasatch Front. So if you're anywhere in Utah, check him out. Um, what's your website, Scott? Uh, ScottRogersMusic.com. Yeah, so check out his music when you have the chance to. Yeah, awesome. Fascinating. I could have sat and probably listened all day yeah. you know, to all the amazing things that you're doing and the connections that you're making. I was just kind of here with my jaw on the floor. <laughs> I kind of didn't expect, like, that really goes on. That's going on there. And I can't wait to go back next week 
and tell my students, say, hey, you know what? You're going to enjoy this when you get to the next level. Yeah. They've got something to look forward to, and I've got some things I can do with my students as well. So cool. thanks, Scott. And uh, check us out next week. we got more guests coming down the pipeline. Um, and as always, um, I'm Matt Winters. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Teacher Winners. And I'm Quinn Henderson, and you can find me at Q Henderson. And in, until next time. And check out our uh, at um, EdTrex PD for more episodes as we release them. We're also part of the House of EdTech Podcasting Network. Check out all their podcasts. Check out Mr. Chris Nessie. Tons of things that are going on on that uh, podcasting network. A lot of awesome stuff. Get out there and share it. Yep. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs>